Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, July 20th, 2018, and you're listening to Up to Date. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. All right, let me ask you a question. What do you think about GMO labeling? I've never been a fan just because labels are already crowded with too much information. And I've always thought that adding more to it just will devalue what's on there already. Yeah, I have also thought that if you start labeling things as GMO, you're going to fear monger, right? So, you know, we've had a couple people on the show talk about the science of GMO foods and whether or not it's healthy for humans. Now, there's a separate conversation about whether it's the best thing for the environment or all of these other kinds of considerations. But when it comes to our GMO foods, safe to eat or not safe to eat, uh, the science has been pretty unequivocal that there's no evidence that GMO foods uh, are, as a whole, unsafe to eat, right? That they have any health consequences. We can agree on that? Totally. And it's a separate argument whether they're healthier like in terms of nutrition, but it certainly has no adverse health consequences according right. to the science. Yeah, exactly. So so claiming that something, uh, you know, or, or adding a label to, to some kind of food saying that it is genetically modified, you can imagine would have one of two consequences. Either people would then think, oh, really, I need to worry about this because this is something that, you know, I now have to, you know, it's like the sugar content or the fat content. Now I need to see, make sure that all the food I have is non-GMO. Or it could be that it starts to normalize it. And then people see, actually, you know, a lot of the food I eat is genetically modified and I've been eating it for, you know, 10 years and I'm perfectly fine. So it turns out that in 2016, there was a state, uh, Vermont to be specific, where they actually mandated the labeling of GMO foods. And some enterprising scientists decided that this was a perfect way to actually answer this question. They wanted to see whether... Labeling of these foods would lead to people in Vermont then having a more negative or a more positive view towards uh, GMO foods. Um, So they did the study and it just recently got published uh, in the journal Science Advances. And what do you think the data show? Well, you you sound a little gleeful over there. So I think (laughs) that's leading me to suspect something. Yeah. So it turns out that there was no evidence uh, that people in Vermont were influenced by the labels in a negative way. Uh, So the results showed that these these labels led to a 19 percent decrease in opposition to GMOs among people who live in in Vermont. And in that same time period across the entire United States, there was no shift in people's opinions. Um, So comparing other parts of the country where you know, these labels are not mandatory. 
Um, and then looking at a place where they were mandatory, it turns out that it it looks as if, I mean, I guess correlational study, um, but it looks as if genetically that that labeling foods as GMO either did not have a negative effect or if anything had a positive effect in the sense that, you know, people tend to have a less negative view of those particular foods. Now, it's Vermont, which is, uh, you know, a, a small sample or at least a unique sample when it comes to the United States. And, uh, you know, I was at the grocery store last night and like pretty much everything that doesn't have GMOs in it uh, and ridiculous things uh, at that are already labeling themselves as being GMO free. So I wonder how much we've already just cooked in this idea well, that GMOs are everywhere. Yeah, but that's different. GMO free is different from saying, hey, this is GMO. This this tomato is a GMO tomato, right? We see a lot of things saying this doesn't contain GMOs, you know, right? I totally. I totally understand what you're saying. I, I'm, uh, I'm saying that people are, uh, have just gotten tired. I wonder if people have just gotten s- tired of seeing the term GMO at all on some <laughs> of these boxes. So whether free or, it, you know, with extra GMOs now, uh, if they're just sick of it altogether. Well, anyway, I thought it was interesting. <laughs> yeah. You know, last night I was at the grocery store, and that's why I mentioned seeing all those GM. GMO free labels. But as I was checking out, I have to admit, I do something. I look at those trashy tabloids on the way out and I saw one highlighting supermodel L. McPherson. And you may be wondering, what supermodel L. McPherson have to do with science? Well, she apparently has a new boyfriend and that boyfriend is Andrew Wakefield. What? Our old friend, Andrew Wakefield, right? Wait, uh, wait, for the anti-vax <laughs> Andrew Wakefield? Yes. The Andrew Wakefield. So for listeners who may not remember, 20 years ago, Andrew Wakefield was the UK physician who at the time created a stir by linking MMR to autism, which was totally debunked. He was actually uh, uh, lost his medical license as a result of this, but has gone on, on, on a crusade saying that yes, there is a link between vaccines and autism where there is none. I thought he had fallen into irrelevancy at this point. I mean, it's been 20 years. The pushback from the media has been extreme. And even though there's been pockets of, you know, like a documentary came out about him, I haven't heard much about Andrew Wakefield in recent years. And it made me wonder, what is the state of anti-vaccination in this country? Uh, And recently, a study came out uh, in PLOS Medicine Uh, from Jacqueline Olive from the Baylor College of Medicine, who looked at what's called NMEs, non-medical exemption uh, rates, in 18 states that allow it. In those 18 states, 12 of them have seen those exemption rates rise. Uh, And this is the kind of exemption on philosophical or religious grounds that you have to file for your child not to get this vaccination before they enroll in kindergarten. And seeing that it was on the rise was eye-opening because I thought we had actually crested a hill here. And there was two surprising results. One, that there's a great deal of growth in in vaccine exemptions amongst rural counties. There was a county in Idaho where it's almost 30% of the population doesn't have vaccinations for MMR. But also that we have pockets of this growing in big urban centers. And that's a probably a bigger concern because that's where something like measles can really outbreak and uh, cause a, a whole cascade effect where uh, thousands of cases can emerge. Yeah, that's that's amazing. 
even the 30% number, it's shocking because, you know, what were you, if, if it's just, if it's like a few percentage points, then maybe you could still say that the, you know, the, the vast majority of kids are vaccinated so you can rely on some herd immunity. Um, but not if 30% of the kids are un, un, not vaccinated. And, and this isn't just a U.S. problem. Uh, there was 20,000 cases of the measles last year in Europe alone, so much so that the Royal College of Nursing in the U.K. has warned people going to music festivals this summer to get booster shots for MMR because those places where lots of people are in a tight location is exactly the kind of place where measles can spread very easily. So there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, what is hopeful to me about this study is that it pinpoints on the county level where more exemptions are happening. So it gives us at least a place where we can focus efforts for policy to make these changes. Uh, here in California, uh, there was a repeal just put in place around exemptions for vaccines that makes it basically much, much harder to get an exemption for vaccines. And that has proven very effective at increasing the overall vaccination rate in the state. Well, that's good news for California. But what are we going to do about Idaho? Well, I guess I'm just not going there on vacation because I don't want to get the measles. Well, that sounds that sounds wise. Uh, but you know, if you if you're gonna if you're not gonna go to Idaho, maybe you could go to uh, Portland instead. Uh, and before you go to Portland, of course, you have to get up on the culture. And so maybe you'll watch the show Portlandia. Yeah, remember that show? Oh, of course. Put a bird on it. <laughs> yeah. So do you remember the episode in which the couple go to a kind of farm to table restaurant and they're you know talking about ordering a chicken and and they want to know everything about the chicken its name whether it had a good life what its personality was like its likes and dislikes yeah it's like hipsters on steroids <laughs> they just want to know the provenance of this of this chicken's life yeah it's po poking fun at this trend of like knowing exactly where your food comes from um well it turns out there's a scientific study that can tell us a little bit about the kind of fish that we eat like what like its personality what do you mean personality of a fish? Do fish have personalities? Well, let me tell you about uh, a couple graduate students that are kind of like my heroes now that I know what they've done. Um, so at the University of Illinois, uh, Michael Lewison is a, a graduate student, and he's also a fisherman, an avid angler. And he decided to bring his two uh, passions together and do a study that involved him having to go fishing. <laughs> he took the bluegill fish, uh, which is what he was studying, and its, and its kind of social interaction. And uh, he went to a hatchery, um, bought a whole bunch of fish eggs, and then stocked a pond with the fish, and then tracked their social behavior. So he knew, uh, you know, he tagged every fish in the pond. And then he and his friend uh, went fishing. <laughs> uh, and they, you know, it's catch and release, because you don't eat your data. <laughs> Fair, um, fair enough. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, he knew which of the fish uh, were caught and which of the fish did not get caught over their um, multiple fishing expeditions. Um, and then they had they built this uh, rectangular fish tank. And in the middle of the fish tank, they put a glass divider. And on one side of the fish tank, they put fish that had been caught at least once. And on the other side of the divider, they put six randomly chosen fish that had never been caught, uh, uh, you know, during their fishing expeditions. Uh, and then they watched how social they were. And what do you mean by how social they were? Like, would they interact with each other across this divider? So how longingly they would stare across that divider <laughs> um, at each other. No, essentially how close they how much time they spent close to the divider indicating that they, you know, were trying to, you know, interact with uh, the other fish in the fish tank. Uh, and so the longer 
time the, the fish spent closer to the divider, the more they scored on a kind of social scale. And it turns out that the fish that were caught tended to, to be more social, to, to score higher on this social scale uh, than the fish that had never been caught. And they also had a different measure of aggression. So you'd think, oh, maybe it's just, the, you know, they're going to the divider because they want to fight, right? Um, and those kinds of aggressive fish are the ones that are going to, like, move fish out of the way if there's something delicious on the end of a fishing rod, uh, fishing line, and, you know, they would take the bait. But it turns out that the the uh, the way in which they measured aggression, uh, they did not find any correlations between aggressiveness and being caught. Uh, it was just that they were more social. They're, they're friendlier fish. So, you know, if this, if this uh, finding transfers across other fish species, then, you know, you can be confident that the fish that you're eating on your plate was friendly. I don't know if that makes me feel better about eating that fish. <laughs> now I have a nicer fish. But, you know, really what I like to think about this result, my interpretation is that the fish got caught, the fish that got caught just have a story to tell now. And so they they just wanted to go share that story yeah. with their, their <laughs> friends across the way. Yeah, they had an adventure to report. So uh, it's enough anthropomorphizing, I think, for one episode. Um, so that's it for Up to Date. And uh, Kishore, what have you got lined up next week? Coming up on Monday, we have an interview with Dr. Mona. She was the pediatrician that identified elevated lead levels in thousands of kids in Flint, Michigan. She's going to talk to us about what she's seen since the initial outbreak and what it all means for the future of that community and thousands of others around the world. Stay tuned for that on Monday. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.